Good morning. Good morning. It really is truly a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll be in verses 31 to 39. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. Would you pray with me, though? Father, we come to you this morning, a people very thankful. Lord, we thank you for your sons. Yeah. We thank you, Lord, that in your son, we have confidence of forgiveness of sin. We thank you that in your son, we have confidence of acceptance with you. Yes. Father, we come before you a needy people. We need you. We need your son. And Father, we need to hear from you. Father, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and cause us to see you and magnify you more. Yes. Father, apart from your spirit working, nothing of eternal value will happen this morning. Yes. So we ask you to work. Yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Security produces freedom. Security produces freedom. Think about it. People put locks on their doors, security systems on their homes, and it gives them a perception of security, which produces freedom from anxiety. People sleep better at night when they think they're safe. Security produces freedom. This happens relationally. You've all met somebody that when you first meet them, they're quiet and reserved and kind of stiff and awkward. You hang out with them a few times, and all of a sudden, a different person shows up. They're more, they're more lively. They joke around. They talk more. What happened was they didn't know you. They were insecure in the relationship. And as they got to know you, the security produced freedom to be themselves. The opposite is also true. Insecurity produces slavery. Think about the religions of the world. Where you have a God, a false God, who you have to do all the right things to please. And what that produces is this constant slavery to, am I good enough? Amen. Have I done enough good today? Does this God still accept me today? Does he still love me today? And it produces this self-focused fear that enslaves us. Security produces freedom. Insecurity produces slavery. But what about the God of Scripture? What is He like? Is He one we can be secure in or insecure in? I think Paul will answer that question for us in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors oh. through him who loved us. For I am sure. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Amen. So I'll ask the question. The true God, the living God, the God of Scripture, one that you can be secure in or one that you have to be insecure with. I think the main point of this sermon is going to be this. Knowing your salvation is secure frees us to live for Christ. Amen. Knowing your salvation is secure frees us to live for Christ. And I want to prove that with three evidences here. First, we're going to look at in verse 31. No foe can succeed. No foe can succeed. In verses 32 through 34, no accusation can stand. No accusation against you if you are in Christ can stand. And then lastly, nothing can separate us from God's love. So main point Knowing your salvation is secure frees us to live for Christ. That will be proven in no foe will succeed, no accusation will stand, and nothing can separate us from God's love. But since we're just jumping right into the middle of a book, it would be helpful to orient ourselves as to where we are in the book of Romans. And I will try to be brief with this part. Romans is this glorious book, the, the Mount Everest in Scripture that explains our salvation. Amen. Paul starts out in the beginning in Romans chapter 1, and he tells the Romans he's eager to come preach the gospel to them. And he tells them that he's eager to come preach his gospel because this gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's right. It's not might be. It's not hope it will be. It is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. But then he, this good news, this gospel, Paul starts out by telling us bad news. He starts out by telling us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And he goes on in chapter 1 to list all of these things that, that most moral people would say, yeah, those things are bad. Yeah, like, Lord, judge those things. Amen. Chapter 2, he turns the finger on the people who at one point were clapping that God's wrath is coming. He says, and you're no different. Amen. You moral, you religious person are guilty of many of the same things. Amen. 
Chapter 3, he throws a blanket over all the world and says, there is none righteous. Mm. Amen. By God's standard of perfect holiness, we're all guilty. Amen. Amen. And if Paul had put a period there and stopped the book, we would have one of the most troubling, mm. depressing books. Mm. But the end of chapter 3, he tells us of great hope. Mm. But the righteousness of God is revealed. In the person of Christ, Amen. who came Amen. and took all of God's wrath for guilty sinners Amen. as a propitiation, a satisfaction of divine wrath, well, so that anyone and everyone who repents and believes will be justified all right. by faith. And because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. Amen. And he continues on that, that Christians will not use that grace as a license to sin, but will be therefore now bound to Christ as a slave to righteousness, Amen. not to sin. And then in chapter 8, he tells us there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. He tells us that we have been adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. But then in the paragraph right before the one we just read, we find this interesting paradox, this dilemma. He tells us that all creation is groaning. Mm. He tells us that Christians groan. Mm. Life is hard. But then he tells us that God works all things for good. All right. And, and we have this kind of life is hard, but God is working things for good. Mm. And how do those things fit? How does the Christian look at the difficulties of life and say, my God is good and he's using that for good? Mm. And Paul immediately then reminds us of God's love. All right. Revealed in the person of Christ. Into that context, we come to verse 31. Our first point, no foe will succeed. Your salvation is secure because no foe against you will succeed. What then shall we say to these things? Well, what are the these things? The, the, the what do we do with the groaning and the all things for good? Here's what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Now, we would do an injustice to this text if we just sped through every word and act like they didn't all have weight. Do you notice the word God there? We're not talking about a created being. We're not talking about a finite, weak being. The one who this text tells us is for us, the one that Psalm 18 that we just read tells us is on our side, yes. is the God of the universe, mm. the uncreated one. Mm. The one who, simply by speaking, created everything that our most powerful telescopes can't even see yet, and everything that our most powerful microscopes can see, and everything in between. Mm. The God that we're speaking of here is the ultimate judge who no one will overrule his ruling. Amen. The one that we're speaking of here is the one who is unrivaled in wisdom and strength and ability. The one that we're speaking of here is the one who parts seas, who causes storms to stop by saying, stop. 
He's the one who causes blind eyes to see and spiritually dead to live. We're talking about the God of the universe. And he says he's for us. He's for us. The question then becomes, who is the us? All right. It isn't everybody. It's not everybody whose heart is beating and whose whose lungs are filling with breath. The us is the ones we read about in verse 29 to 30. It's Christians. Amen. It's those whom he foreknew, whom he predestined, whom he called, whom he justified, and whom he will glorify. He is on the side of his children. Amen. If you by faith are his son or his daughter, this text says that he is for you. And then the the conclusion is, if that one is for you, who can be against you? If the God of the universe is on your side, who is going to come against him? I got saved later in high school, and I was the kid, as you can tell, my physique is not the most muscular. I was the kid that ran his mouth. With great confidence, because I, my two best friends were linemen on the football team, and no, I could say whatever I want. Nobody was going to come at me because they, they were going to have to deal with them. The same thing is true here. We're weak. We're puny. All right. We have great confidence not in our own ability, our own strength. We have confidence in the one who's on our side. Amen. Amen. He tells us who can be against us, and if you're like me, you're wondering, well. A lot of people could be against us. <laughs> a lot of people could oppose us. Paul's not saying the Christian life will now be free of opposition. If God is for you, your life is just going to be a bed of roses. If God is for you, you'll never face difficulties. People will never hate you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in spite of all the opposition, the world will hate you. Jesus told us that. In spite of that, in spite of hatred and persecution and trials, no matter what may come against you, the God of the universe is still on our side. Amen. Amen. It's not that opposition won't come. It's that ultimately opposition will never succeed against God's people because he is for us. Amen. The God of the universe is on our side. What does that do for us? I think that frees us in our trials. Right? If we have a God that we're not sure, is he really for me? Does he still care about me today? Does he still love me today? Every trial that will come, you know what I'm going to do? Is he mad at me now? Maybe I better be better today so that this trial stops. Knowing that God is for us will free us in our trials. Now, Scripture is clear that our trials can be because of sin. And we should examine ourselves and see if there's any iniquity in us and if there is, repent of it. Amen. But it does free us in the trials, if we are God's children, to not doubt that this, is, this isn't coming because of his displeasure, necessarily. This isn't coming because he's now angry and going to condemn me. This is coming for my good. And it frees me to trust him. Amen. It frees me to rely upon him. It frees me to rejoice in him even in the trial. Number one, no foe will succeed. Second thing, and this is where we're going to slow down and take our time. No accusation 
can stand. You are secure in your salvation because no accusation against you can stand. And we're going to break that down into two subpoints. The Father will not condemn you, verse 32 and 33. The Son will not condemn you, verse 34. Verse 32 and 33, the Father will not condemn you. He, that's the God who is for us, he did, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He didn't spare. He freely gave him. What he gave him for was to die on a tree. He didn't spare him from his wrath. He didn't spare him from the nails and the thorns. He didn't spare him from being mocked and stripped naked. He didn't spare him, but he gave him. There is a word there, though. He did not spare. It doesn't just say his son. It says his own son. And this is going to contrast what happened earlier in chapter 8, where he adopts sons and daughters. The distinction here is that this son is unique. This, this is his own son, one of his own nature. This is God the second person. The father freely gives his very heart to us. The most precious, costly one in all of the universe. This is the son in whom Isaiah says, this is my son in whom my soul delights. This is the one who John 1.18 says, has dwelled eternally in the bosom of the father, this picture of intimacy. This is the one whom the angels adore for all eternity and will never grow tired of crying out, holy, holy, holy is this one. This is the one who created all things and is preeminent over all things. And the Father gives him. Gives him and doesn't spare, doesn't relent, does not stop judgment to fall to him. He gives up his only son. He doesn't spare him. The picture here, the wording here, reminds us of what happens in Genesis 22. It's very similar language to when Abraham brings Isaac up. Only this time, no ram comes out of the thicket. Only this time, no substitute is given. No, this one is the substitute. And unlike... Abraham, who does not have to offer his own son. The father offers his own son. And he gave him for us all. He gave him for us all, indiscriminately. He gave him for people in Mongolia, in Madagascar, in Maryland. He gave him for rich and poor, educated and uneducated. He gave him for us all. Amen. If he would give his son, the logic is going to then go, what else would he withhold? Mm -hmm. 
If he gave his son the most precious thing to his heart, the text continues, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, it's important to say what he's not saying. This is not your license to then say, God is now going to give me a car. God is going to give me a jet. God is going to give me a mansion. That's not what he's saying. All right. What he is saying is how, if he's going to give you the best thing in all the universe for your soul, how would he withhold any other good thing for your soul? If he gave his son to purchase you, will he not give you everything you need to supply your needs to live for him? Amen. Will he not also give you everything you need? Will he not give you the strength you need to fight your sin? If he gave his son, will he not also give his spirit to dwell in you? Will he not also give you a new nature with new desires and new longings and new wants? Amen. If he gave his son, will he not also give his word to guide you? If he gave his son, will he not also give you brothers and sisters right. to live the Christian life and help spur you on to love and good works? If, if he gave his son, would he not also give you access to him in prayer? Where you can come day and night before his throne asking for help and he stands ready to give? Amen. If he gave his son, will he not also give us trials for our good to refine us Amen. and grow us? It's like this. If I had a nice house and you didn't, and I said, hey, take my house, and was that generous, you would have great confidence that if I was willing to give you my house, I'd also give you a piece of paper if you asked. He goes from greater to lesser. If, if someone's that generous, they'll certainly be generous generous enough to give us something lesser. All right. If he gave his son, he'll give us anything that's good for us. Amen. Amen. What confidence we can have. It doesn't end there. All right. He continues in verse 33. And this is where it gets into more of the, the legal accusation language. Who shall bring a charge or an accusation or a, a condemning word against God's elect or against Christians, God's people, sons and daughters whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world? Who's going to bring this accusation? Well, he tells us it is God who justifies. This is legal language. This is courtroom language. God is the one who justifies. The word justified means he declares legally no longer guilty, acquitted of all guilt. If God has made a declaration over you that you are not guilty, what accusation will stand? Again, if you're like me and you read, who will bring an accusation? Who will bring a charge? I'm like, a lot of people could. <laughs> My sin will stand up on the last day and say, he's rightfully guilty. My conscience constantly stands up and says, you're guilty. My foes in the world can look at my life and say, guilty. Satan can come rightfully and say, guilty. But here's the good news. That because God gave his son, because the son came and lived a perfect, righteous, spotless life every moment of his earthly existence, because his perfect son was nailed to a cross and died, bearing all your sin and all your guilt. All right. And because he rose 
He now offers forgiveness to any who come in repentance and faith. And anyone who comes in repentance and faith, the Father declares no longer guilty because he covers them in his Son's righteousness. Amen. Such that when someone stands up to make an accusation, the Father says, I see no guilt. All of the demands of my justice have been paid in my Son, and I see him, not them. Amen. Who is going to condemn you? God will not. And if he's the ultimate judge, who will condemn you? No one. Amen. Amen. It's not because of works done by you and I in righteousness. It's because of the works of Jesus. That we stand righteous. Who will condemn us? Again, we don't get this justification, this declaring righteous by our own effort. By the efforts of his son. Henry Smith, an old Puritan, says it this way, and I, I couldn't improve it, so I'm quoting him. Mm. He hides our unrighteousness with his righteousness. He covers our disobedience with his obedience. Mm. He shadows our death with his death. Mm. And here's why I loved it. That the wrath of God cannot find us. Mm. His justice will come searching on the last day to judge all the guilty. But because of his son, he will not find our guilt. Because it is paid for. It's gone. It's dealt with. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The Father will not condemn you. The Son will not either. Verse 34. The Son will not allow any accusation to stand. Who is to condemn? Romans 8, 1 already answered that, right? There is now therefore what? No condemnation. condemnation. Here it says, who will condemn you? He's continuing this legal language. This, If you're in the courtroom, who's going to say you're guilty? The Father won't. Verse 34, Jesus certainly won't. Jesus Christ is the one who died. Jesus is the one who died the death we deserve. And it's kind of like, you know, those game shows where they have the commercial, but wait, there's more. It's like, he died, but wait, there's more. He did more than just die. The most glorious truth in all the universe is not just that Jesus died. All right. Literally billions of people in the history of the world have died. And we did not gather to celebrate any of them. That's right. We don't remember any of their names. Mm-hmm. Unless they were really famous or infamous. Why are we here celebrating this one? Why, is, why do we gather across the river in Virginia and D.C. and Maryland and all over the world every Sunday? It's because Jesus, the Son of God, died but didn't stay dead. Amen. He rose. He lives. Mm always lives, eternally lives. And in his death, he paid the penalty for your sin. And in his life, he now gives you life. Amen. If you come by repentance. He now now offers you his own life. He now fits you for eternity. He now takes away the fear of death in his death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Amen. But wait, there's more. 
He didn't just die. He didn't just rise. He now is ascended at the right hand of the Father. This is a position of unrivaled authority. Like no one's taking this position. And the logic goes, if he died for your sin, and he rose to give you new life, and now he sits in a position that no one can rival, and he's going to say you're not guilty, no one can say you're guilty. Amen. But wait, there's more. <laughs> he intercedes. Yes. Right. And we often hear intercede and we think pray. Which there's an aspect of truth to that. But this is another legal term that means advocate. It's like the picture when Satan comes into heaven and Job and says, what about Job? And here comes this legal advocate, this defense attorney who says, behold my scars. Mm. Look at all their guilt. Look at what they just looked at last night. Look at what they desire in their heart. Do you see how much they hate other image bearers and, and how their words are used to tear other image bearers down? Don't you see their guilt? And the, the son comes if you're in him and says, Behold my hands and feet. Oh, amen. I see it, but I paid for it. All right. All their bills have been paid by me. Amen. There is no debt left. <laughs> Like, I don't even have words to tell you how good this is. The Son won't condemn us. The Father won't condemn us. No accusation against you or I will stand. That should free us. That should free us to live completely for Jesus. It should free us because we recognize how great a sacrifice the Son gave. Amen. And then frees us to say, I give it all back to you. It's all yours. Every ounce of my intellect, every affection of my heart, every word of my mouth, all of my finances, all of my stuff, all of the gifts that you've given me, they're yours, and please just spend them as you please. The security we have in our salvation frees us to live for Christ. It opens our eyes to what great sacrifice he has given. And then says we're free to give it back because he's trustworthy. Amen. Like if we just stopped at verse 31, we'd have enough to thank the Lord for all eternity. He's for us. If we stopped at verse 34, we'd have enough to propel us into all eternity to worship the Son. But verse 35 through 39 are there. Nothing can separate us from his love. Amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Verse 35, we're going to find this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, all of those are named in 2 Corinthians. It's something Paul actually experienced. Whoa. When he lists off all the things that have happened, those are all words he uses. Is Paul saying this? I've experienced all of those things. And you know what the end result is? I know God has not stopped loving me. People have flogged me. People literally stoned me to the point where they thought I was dead. I've been shipwrecked. I've experienced famine. I've experienced the shame in this culture of being naked before people. And guess what? Through it all, God still loves me. None of those things have been able to separate me from his love. There is one word in verse 35 that's not used in 2 Corinthians. 
It's the last one. Sword. The reference to judicial uh, capital punishment. That will happen to Paul. There will come a day where he goes to Rome and he experiences the sword. And though his body is removed from his head, here's what he says. The love of Christ cannot be removed from him. Nothing can separate us from his love. His love is like a reflection of his very nature. As God is eternal, so is his love to his people. He loved us with an everlasting love. God is unchanging. God is the same for all eternity. Malachi tells us that God cannot change. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, he doesn't change, and he says he loves us. His love doesn't change. His promises don't change. We don't have some daisy theology where he loves me, he loves me not, today he loves me, tomorrow he doesn't. We have a God who loves constantly. Amen. His love is unchanging and unchangeable. Circumstances don't dictate it. His love is based purely on his character. Our obedience does matter in the Christian life, but our the love the Father gives to us is not based on our performance. Amen. It's based on his nature, which then drives us to, to obey him. The Father loves us. The Son loves us. Verse 36 doesn't seem to fit if you just read it. God loved us. And then we have a, a quote from the book of Psalms that talks about sheep being slaughtered. Mm. How does that fit? I think what Paul's doing here is saying this. Here's a quote from the Old Testament about how God's people have been persecuted. He's saying persecution, trials, opposition, hatred from the world is nothing new to God's people. Whoa. And through all of them in the Old Testament, God continued to love his people. And the same will be true for us today. Trials come. Amen. People hate. The world opposes. And no matter what they do to our earthly bodies, God's love remains. Amen. At the end of the day, we still have a God who's for us. At the end of the day, we still have a God who has declared us righteous. At the end of the day, we still have a God who loves us, even if people kill us. In verse 37, no. In all these things, the, the tribulations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and all these things, we're conquerors, right? Amen. Say no. No. More than conquerors. Amen. If it's just conquerors, it's like this. All of these come, and at the last day, we're still standing. Now, this word, actually, this Greek word has the idea of super conquerors, abundant conquerors. All right. It's not just that we're left standing at the end of the day made it. What this is telling us is that we are more than that. I think this is referring back to verse 28. That even the difficulties of life, even the trials of life, because we have a God who in his providence is even using those things for our good, even the trials and the tribulations and the famine and the sword and all of these things, God doesn't just use to help us conquer. We're more than conquerors. They are used for good. All right. The persecution of God's people doesn't just, we don't just, we're not left standing on the last day. He uses that to propel the gospel forward, and we more than conquer. Hmm. 
He uses the, the martyrs all across the globe to not just say, hey, the church is still there. The church advances mm. more than conquers. Amen. And he goes back to the same idea. What is going to separate you from God's love? Death or life? Nope. Angels or rulers? Supernatural beings? Governments? Are they going to separate you from God's love? Hmm. No. Things that happen today or things that might happen tomorrow, are they going to separate you from God's love? No. Hmm. Powers? No. Heights or depth? That, that has the idea of things here or things up in the atmosphere. No. Well, what could? And in case Paul forgot anything, he says, nor anything else in all creation. <laughs> Poverty cannot separate you from all God's right. love. Relational difficulties won't separate you from God's love. Amen. Nothing. Amen. And when he says nothing, he means nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Amen. The key, though, is that you be in Christ. Amen. The key is that you have come to a point where you have repented of your sins. You recognize you are guilty before a holy God. And that recognition breaks your heart. And you turn to him and say, I'm a guilty sinner. Mm. I have no hope in myself. Amen. I have no hope in my works. Mm. I have no hope in what other people might do for me. Mm. I only see hope in your son. Be merciful to me. I trust your promises. Amen. And the father says, that person, the person who has done that for them, no one will condemn them. Mm. My love will never be taken away. You're secure if you are in Christ. Amen. I have two points of application just for the end. The first thing is this. We need a balanced view of assurance. I had struggled as an early Christian with assurance. Mm. At 17 years of sinning, it didn't instantly go away the moment I trusted in Jesus. Mm. And I would see my sin and know it was wrong and think, how could I be a Christian? What, I would just doubt my salvation over and over and over again. I think we need a balance. We don't want easy believism where right. you're a Christian because you raised your hand, walked an aisle, squeezed a hand, or done something like that, and you're just, you're a Christian. You're free now to live however you want. You got your life insurance, get out of hell free card, and you're good. Do what you want, Christian. We don't want that. Amen. The Bible does tell us that that people who have been born of God will bear good fruit. They will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen. We also don't want to go what I'll call the other side and be hard believism. Where if you're not perfect all the time, you should never think yourself to be a Christian. Amen. Christians do sin at times. But they do desire to repent. Amen. Christians will struggle. But they hate it. They fight it. They bring it to the light. I think the balance is this. You are not saved based on your performance. Amen. I'm going to heaven because Jesus Christ died. Amen. And Jesus Amen. Christ rose. And Jesus Christ is perfect. And his righteousness clothes me. I am objectively going to heaven because of the work of another. Amen. Amen. I know that I've trusted him, though being evidenced in my life changes. 
It may be slow change. There may be dips and valleys in that change. But my affections are new. I don't love my sin. My words at times may be inconsistent, but the Lord's changing. My behaviors at times may fall back into the old nature. But God quickly says, no. There's a balance. You know you're going to heaven because of Jesus. Amen. You can see that in your life through the changes he brings. I know this gets quoted often, but Robert Murray McShane, an old, dead Scottish preacher, said this, For every thought of self, have ten thoughts of Christ. Examine yourself. Examine yourself in light of Scripture. See, is, is the Lord producing good works in me? But don't overly focus on that. If you see things that are wrong, quickly then say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, see your son. I find guilt in my life. I find error in my life. I find vile sin in my life. Lord, see your son. Amen. Lord, your son bled for that. Have mercy on me. Lord, your son rose to vindicate me. Have mercy on me. Think upon the son. The second point and last one, one we'll close on is this. We started out by saying security produces freedom. Your salvation in the Son is secure. That will then free you to live right. How much would the gospel advance if we knew, grasp the hold of this? If in our workplaces, in our families, in our schools, we would not be captive to people's acceptance of us or fear of opposition. Knowing that we have a God who loves us no matter what opposition comes. Amen. No, knowing that no matter what the world might say about us, we have a God who says something opposite about us. Oh. Knowing that no matter how many people come and how hard they come at us, we have a God who's on our side. Will that, that not free us to then boldly proclaim the gospel? Amen. This is actually a missionary letter. Paul's writing to the Romans saying, I want to go to Spain to preach the gospel. What do you think propelled him to say, I don't care if I get stoned. Maybe they thought I was done with the sermon when they stoned me. And he gets up and he goes back in and keeps preaching. What propels that? A confidence that no matter what man has done to him, the Lord loves him. The Lord is for him. And the Lord will vindicate him. Amen. I know this statement needs to be nuanced in all kinds of ways. So please just give grace. But there is no such thing as an unopened country for people who grasp this. There's no such thing as a country that is closed to the gospel for people who are willing to lay down their lives for Christ. And the only people who will be willing to lay down their lives for Christ are people who are not guilted into feeling bad because they're not doing enough evangelism. It's people who grasp that you are secure in Christ who loves you and will never condemn you. So you can die for Jesus. Because the moment you stop breathing, you will be with him in eternal bliss. Like this stuff is not just you're secure then to sit back and rest and say, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian. There is time for that. Amen. But this stuff should propel us to say, Lord, I am free and secure in you. Use me. Use me. Because you're so wonderful. Use me. Security produces freedom. Your salvation is secure. You are therefore free to live for Christ. Pray with me. Father, we come into your presence, a people so thankful. 
that you've been so gracious that you've given your son. A people so grateful that you have sent the most precious thing to your heart for our salvation. Lord, help us grasp this. Lord, we'll never fully grasp the heights and depth of your love, but Father, help us grasp it a little bit more that we might live more freely for you.